Okay, we've been doing um, the series on Engage, right? Started talking about spiritual drift, and then we've talked about the opposite of drift is I have to, with intentionality, I have to engage in practices so I don't drift spiritually. And we've talked about five core practices that help me not to drift. And we've done the first two, which is grow, growing in God and gathering, being together in community. And we're going to take a week to not, not back up, but step back just a little bit. I'm going to do something a little bit different this morning, but that's related. Because all of us, even when I know I'm being engaged to not drift, I'm still going to drift. We, just, we all go through those periods of our life, right? And so I want to ask the question, like, what perspective should we take our continual struggle with drift. And I really am hoping that through Abraham's life, we learn something really important this morning. So I do want you to turn to Genesis. That's where we're going to be. We're going to be looking at the, the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis. Um, Abraham is one of the most important people in history, so much so that a national magazine recently, in the last few years, actually did a whole, put him on the front page. I mean, that's pretty, on the cover, that's pretty amazing that Abraham made the cover of the National Geographic um, my favorite picture of Abraham, personally, I was searching the internet this week, is this one. Uh, I won't tell you why I like that picture so much. It's not the beard. There's something else going on with his head that, that I totally relate to. Um, if I were to show you another photo that I love of, of Abraham and Sarah, it's this one. It comes from Nellie's uh, children's Bible, and that's Abraham and Sarah, and Every time she sees Abraham and Sarah, she says, Nama and Papa. Again, I think it's the hair thing that does that. So, uh, but you know, the Bible called Abraham God's friend. He was a man of great faith. Um, in fact, he's called the father of faith. And as, if you know his story well, you know that his life is bracketed by two, two huge stories of, of crazy faith in God, right? His, his being called to leave his homeland to go to a place that he doesn't know, and the call to sacrifice Isaac. And that's what his life is bracketed by. But I want you to know, we're going to do a flyover of his life, that between that, his life was also a life of a lot of doubt and a lot of stumbling and a lot of faltering and a lot of failing. And we're going to see that not only is he a man of great faith, he is a man of great failure. So, we are going to look at starting in chapter 12 with his life, if you'll turn there in your Bible, and we are going to kind of hit several chapters in a row here, so open your Bible to Genesis 12. And I need to tell you up front, we're going to read some things in some of these stories that to us are totally abhorrent, they're repugnant, and we're going to be like, what in the world is going on with that? And I just want you to know a couple of things, that one, some of the things that he and Sarah do were common in their culture at that time, that doesn't excuse them because they still are repulsive and repugnant. And if, as you read the stories, you'll find out that God doesn't like what they do, and he in no way excuses the cultural norms that they follow. But just to get that out, cleared up. So let's jump in chapter 12. I want to look at chapter 12. And it's the beginning of his story, and it is a story of faith, this first story. So chapter 12, it says this, The Lord, had, the Lord said to Abram, and he's called Abram, and she's Sarai at the beginning. He'll change their name in a little bit. Go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. He went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. 
Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. That sounds like a Lord of the Rings thing, doesn't it? Anyways, the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Um, this is a map of that journey. It was quite far that God called him to, asked him to leave at 75 years old, to leave the place he knew and to go to a place he didn't know. Can you imagine what that's like? I'm almost, I'm getting close to 60 and I don't like to change my ways, right? I've got my ruts I've lived in my whole life. I can't imagine the faith that it took for them to do this. So it was a major step of faith. But immediately after he gets there, he stumbles in a very major way, very major way. So let's look at verse 10 of chapter 12, verse 10 of chapter 12. And we're going to see him fail in two ways. So verse 10, it says, now there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was so severe. So first his faith falters in that God sent him here and promised him this place to protect him and to provide. And as soon as something bad happens, he's gone, he's out of there, he's down in Egypt where things are better. But it gets worse, okay? So we're going to see his second, the second way that he fails that's more obvious. So verse 11, as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but let you live. So I want you to say... And isn't that nice that he puts all that on her, by the way? I want you to say, you're my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. So when Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when the Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram and he says, what in the world have you done to me? He said, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here's your wife, take her and go. And then Pharaoh gave orders that Abram to his men and they sent him away with his wife and everything that he had. So major failing. And then we see, we're going to go to chapter 15 now, and we're going to see him swing back to faith. Though it is mixed, it is tinged with some doubt. So go to chapter 15. Chapter 15. And we're going to see him here come back to faith, though it falters somewhat. So after this in verse 1, and we don't know exactly how long, by the way, after th that this occurred after that, but the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Isn't that a powerful scripture? I love that. But verse 2, Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who, inherit, the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. So you can see the doubt creeping in, right? Look at verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. 
And then verse 6, one of the greatest passages in all the Bible. Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord, God, credited to him as righteousness. And so he has this amazing act that he puts his faith in that promise to God, and God credits it to his account as being as though he were righteous. And in doing, though, Abram sets the pattern that's all throughout the Bible, right? That the way I come into a right relationship with God to be declared righteous by him is not by being a good person, which most people think. If I do enough good things, God will accept me. But he sets the pattern that the way into a right relationship with him is by putting my faith and trust in him, and specifically for us, my trust in Jesus Christ, his death on the cross for my sin, his resurrection, and that only through that am I saved. So he sets the stage for that kind of life, that faith. Verse 7, he also said to him, so this is God, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and to take possession of it. And now we're going to see some doubt sneak, sneak in again. But Abraham, in verse 8, but Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I'll gain possession of it? And the rest of the chapter, and we're not going to go through it, but it's God establishing his covenant in a way that was very common in that day. So faith, but some faltering. And then you turn the page to chapter 16, and he fails in a major way again. So go to chapter 16 in verse 1. And this is 10 years after that initial promise that God made to him. He's still without a son, okay? So verse 1 of chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, so he's now 85, she's 75, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. So once again, Abraham is struggling to trust God. And out of his distrust of God, he sleeps with a woman that's not his wife. And not only with a woman that's not his wife, but even more, he sleeps with a woman who has absolutely nothing to say about it, right? She has no say. And then it continues. When she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now she knows she is pregnant, and she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. And then Abram says, your slave is in your hands. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. And so he, Abram allows Sarai to mistreat her after all of this. She flees south into the desert where she likely would die, would have died if God had not met her there, intervened in a very specific way and saved her, and he actually sent her back to them. And then in verse 15 it says, So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Okay, so now... On, I need to keep up with this. Now on to the next story, which is in chapter 17. And in chapter 17, this is where God really officially formalizes the covenant that he has with Abraham. So look at verse 1. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him. And let me add, Ishmael's probably 13 right now. So has become the oldest, has become, reached the, the age of, of adulthood, and Abraham is still struggling that God hasn't given him a son. And so said, and, and so God said to him, probably knowing that, I am God Almighty, walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Verse 2, then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. 
Abram fell face down. Pay attention to that because he's going to do it one more time. And God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will now be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep, every male among you shall be circumcised. You're to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. So it's getting a little painful here, so I'm going to skip to 15 if that's okay. Verse 15, so God also said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you, will, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. And then verse 17, Abraham fell face down again. But then what does it say? And he laughed he laughed and he said to himself, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 99? And Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. So he doesn't believe, right? He doesn't believe this is going to happen. And he falls on his face and he laughs. Um, that's the Hebrew way of saying he was rolling on the floor laughing, okay? That's what happened. That was his response to God. And then God said, in verse 19, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you're going to call him Isaac. And Isaac, by the way, means he laughs. Good name, right? I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I've heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. I will be the father of, he will be the father of 12 rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac. Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. And we had finished speaking with Abraham. God got up and went from him. Then you turn, you get to chapter 18. And in chapter 18, we're not going to go over it, but Abraham, I think out of great faith, he boldly intercedes on the behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then chapter 20 is kind of the next big story that comes after that. And again, we're going to see Abraham fail in chapter 20 in a major way. So look at chapter 20, verse 1. And when you read this, you're going to say, haven't we seen this story before? So chapter 20, verse 1. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev, and he lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar. And there Abraham said of his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. I mean, same thing again, right? Did you ever learn from before? Same song, different tune, right? He's not trusting God. So verse 3, but God came to Abimelech in a dream one night, and he said to him, you're as good as dead because of the woman you've taken. She is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she's my sister, and didn't she also say, he's my brother? I've done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. And then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and so I've kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. 
But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will die. So where the next morning, I, he did what I would do. If I, he, God told me I would die the next morning if I didn't do this. He, he summoned all of his officials and he told them all that had happened. And they were very much afraid. And then Abimelech called Abraham in and he says, what have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you brought such a great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You've done things to me that should never have been done. I mean, even he knew that. You've done things you shouldn't have done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, what was your reason for doing this? And Abraham replied, I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place, and they'll kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother. And she became my wife. And then pay attention to what he says next. I had never noticed this till this year, reading through Genesis. Verse 13, and when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. When God called them out of Ur, to, out of Haran to leave, they made this plan way back then that this was their contingency no matter where they went. This has been their plan all along. I'm like, wow, that's so crazy. Then verse 14, so then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves, and he gave them to Abraham, and he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, my land is before you, live wherever you like. And then we get to chapter 21. Isaac is finally born. Um, at 100 years old, he's given the son. Sarah has the son Isaac. And then verse 6, it says, Sarah said, God has brought me laughter. Everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. So you have the birth of Isaac in the story. And now Abraham's going to stumble again. Look at verse 8 which follows right on the heels of that. The child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. And you're like, wow, this has happened before, right? And so Abraham does what she says. He sends her out. Again, same song, different tune. Sends her off again. She goes down to the desert where she likely will die. God meets her there again, provides with her, and he ends up growing up in that area. And then we come to chapter 2, which is probably the crowning act of Abraham's life, one of the greatest acts of faith in the Bible. And so turn the page to chapter 22. And we're going to see him display an equal, a very shocking depth of faith that contrasts with the lack of faith we just saw. So verse 1, sometime later, and I will add, we don't know exactly when. It was likely more than a decade. Isaac was probably a teenager. God tested Abraham, and he said to Abraham, "Here," I, and Abraham said, here I am, he replied. And then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. I mean, the son that he waited 25 years to get, right? He's probably had him several, you know, a little over a decade now. And now God is saying, I want you to go up there and sacrifice him. Can you imagine what that was like? But look at verse 3. Early the next morning, like no delay, early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. 
Um, I'll let you read the rest of the chapter. If you don't know what happens with the story, it's pretty amazing how God provides. The sacrifice doesn't happen. But he's demonstrated this great faith. And then after chapter 22, you get to chapter 23, where Sarah dies. And then in chapter 25, Abraham dies. Abraham dies. So that's the flyover of his life. That is the timeline, and that's where we see what his life really looked like in reality. And as I thought about this, there's a lot of lessons I could pull out of his life. Um, but I want, there's one particular thing I really want to go to today, and here's, here's where I want to go with this. Abraham truly was a man of extraordinary faith, wasn't he? I mean, he did some amazing things in faith. But I also want you to know he was a man of great doubts, a man of great doubts, a man who failed many times with kind of a regularity at points all along his faith. He stumbled, he faltered, he failed miserably many times. That is what marked out his faith. We see him, I mean, think of the things that he did. He took things into his own hands multiple times, not trusting God or trusting his timing, right? He tried to force God's hand. He lied and manipulated. He willfully sinned even when he knew better. Um, he frequently trusted his own judgment more than God's judgment on things. He accepted his culture's way of doing things, even when he knew it wasn't right, but he still did it. He was more concerned in advancing his agenda than he was in God's agenda. He took lots of ethical shortcuts. And Abraham repeated the same sins time after time after time after time. That's Abraham and his life. And the common denominator in all of his failings was unbelief. Unbelief was a common denominator. He did not trust that God would provide what he promised. He didn't trust that God would protect him and his family. So when I look at Abraham, here's what I see. I'm like, what a contradiction, right? What a man with a mixed bag of faith he is. He went from faith to failure to faith. I mean, back and forth, only to rinse and repeat and do it all over again. I mean, we see him ping-pong back and forth from this total radical faith and trust in God to then a shocking lack of faith in God. It's, it's just amazing. And when I look at his story, here's my conclusion. How much like me? How much like me? We all do this, right? I take things into my own hands, not trusting God's agenda or trusting his timing, right? I try to force God's hand on things. I lie and manipulate to get my own way. I willfully sin even though I know better to do that. I frequently trust my judgment more than I trust God's judgment. I sometimes accept the culture's way of doing things when I know it's really not the right thing to do. Um, I'm many times more concerned with advancing my own agenda than I am God's agenda. I take ethical shortcuts to get what I want, and I do the same sins time and time and time and time again. I am Abraham. I'm just like him, and he's just like me. There's no difference really between us. So I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 4. Now that we've kind of set up Abraham, we've looked at his life and set him up, I want you to turn to Romans 4, because I want to show you something fascinating that Paul says about Abraham in Romans 4. If you're new to the Bible... You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the Gospels, the book of Acts, and then Romans. And so I want you to turn to Romans chapter 4. And just pay close attention to what Paul says about Abraham. So I'm starting in verse 18. Listen to what Paul, 
says about Abraham. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. And I read that and I say, how could God, through Paul, say that about Abraham? Did he not know the Abraham that I know? You could say that if you only read the two stories on the bracket of his life, right? The first great act of faith and the second. If you know his whole life, it's like, how in the world can God say that? I mean, really? You can say that about him? And to me, the answer to that question is in verse 16. Um, In verse 16, Paul refers to, to the faith of Abraham. In English, it's the faith of Abraham. But in Greek, there's no definite article. There is no the on it. It's just simply in Greek, faith of Abraham. And that's really significant because in the Greek language, in the Greek language, when they leave off that definite article, the, 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 when they leave that off, it's conveying an overall, overarching, defining quality. Does that make sense? An overall defining quality. So in the eyes of God, Abraham's faith, his life, overall was characterized and defined by faith when God looked at the whole thing. That's what Paul is saying. And I want you to know that is so encouraging to me. So encouraging. And here's what it tells me. That God sees the whole of our lives. That that's what he sees and that's what he looks at. He looks at the overall direction of my life on my journey to faith. That God takes the long view when he's looking at my life. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying my individual choices along the way don't matter. That's not what I'm saying, okay? But here's what I want you to know. His focus isn't so much on the snapshots of our lives, those individual moments. The focus of God is on the movie of our life, the overall movie. He sees the overall pattern. He sees the whole of my life. And the people who seriously follow Jesus, yes, we all have snapshots in our life of drift, right? They keep coming up. But that's not, in God's view, that's not what defines us. What defines us is the big picture. Don't you love that? That what matters to God really is the direction of my life. It's the trajectory of my life. That's what matters to Him. What God is looking for, in the words of Eugene Peterson, is He's looking for a life that's characterized by a long obedience in the same direction. By a long obedience in the same direction. That's what God's looking for. And so God, in Romans 4, can call Abraham a man of faith, not because he never doubted, not because he never failed, because he did a lot of both, did he not? I mean, in ways probably none of us will ever fail. But God called him a man of faith because through the ups and downs of his life and the ups and downs of his faith, Anytime Abraham stumbled and fell and he fell and he got up, he always redirected himself to true north, to the relationship with God and to walking with him. That's why God says of him he is a man of faith. Through all those small detours, Abraham would go on in the grand scheme, grand scheme of things in his life for the long haul. God looked at Abraham and said, I see faith in the big picture. And that's to me what faith is. 
So I don't know about you, but I need to hear that. I need to hear that. And I need to see God's saints, warts and all, as real-life flesh-and-blood people, right? Who do well and who totally blow it. Triumphs and failures all. And that's what I love about the Bible is it doesn't whitewash anybody. I want to walk by faith. And I assume most people here want to walk by faith. I want to trust him. I don't want to doubt. I don't want to fear. I don't want to worry. I don't want to have anxiety. I want to be obedient, right? Um, But in reality, I'm Abraham. That's who I am. I'm Abraham. And here's my tendency. Here's my tendency. I focus on the snapshots. That's what I focus on. When I fall down and I stumble, what happens to me is I get fixated on that. Like, oh, here we go again. Yep, this is who I am. This is what defines me, right? And you, you zoom in and you focus on that to the point that you feel defeated. And then you're like, well, and then you get stuck. Anybody ever get stuck in drift because you're so focused on the snapshot? That's what happens to me. And then Satan, I think, loves us to focus on the snapshot. And that's what he wants us to do and fill his, that no condemnation and he wants us stuck. But I just want you to know that's not God's perspective. He takes the larger, longer view. In Psalm 103.14, the psalmist says, He knows how weak we are, and he remembers we are only dust. Are you thankful for that? He remembers that we're only dust. None of us follows perfectly. We're all a work in progress, right? He knows that. He gets it. He understands that that's what it's like. In the words of C.S. Lewis from the Screwtape Letters, he knows that we are spiritual amphibians, that our nearest approach to constancy is undulation, which means up and down. The repeated return to a level from which we repeatedly fall back, a series of troughs and peaks. He knows that. He knows that. And what God is most interested in, I mean, that picture up there, it's the trajectory of my life. He knows that I stumble. He knows that I fall. He knows that I falter. And he just simply desires that I would stumble in the right direction towards him. Because that's what Abraham did. He stumbled in the right direction towards him. Um, Please don't take this as an excuse to be lazy in your walk with God. That's not the point. And if if you use it that way, you're missing, I think you're missing the whole point um, of what this is about. This just reminds me that God is more concerned with the overall direction of my life. He sees a bigger picture. And the other thing I see in this is that being a mixed bag doesn't make us unusable. Thank goodness for that, right? Thank goodness for that. Abraham's story reminds me that God uses imperfect people. I mean, is there anything different than imperfect? He uses imperfect people who have imperfect faith. And he uses us in spite of our failings, in spite of our our failings, our faltering, our stumbling. He uses us in spite of all that. And I'm so grateful for his grace. And that kind of takes me to my final point with all of this. Um, The most important thing, that in all of this, I want you to see that God is the hero of this story. Always and ever, he's the hero of the story, beginning to end. Through it all, he remains faithful. In 2 Timothy 2.13, Paul says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. And through all those times when Abraham faltered and stumbled and failed, God never faltered once. Never once did God falter. Um, God continued to work. 
God continued to keep his promise. And what I really love is God kept showing up multiple times. If we had paid more attention, if I had directed your attention a little more, multiple times God showed up into Abraham's life to encourage him and to prod him on in his faith. And through it all, God continually met Abraham with his chesed love. We talked about that about a month ago, right? His steadfast, unfailing, kind, long-suffering, patient, unconditional love kept meeting Abraham at every step of the way because God is the hero of the story. He was the, he's the hero of the Bible. He was the hero of Abraham's story, and he's the hero of my story because I'm Abraham. So he's the hero of my story. So take heart. Take heart. Keep your eyes on him. In all of the fits and starts of your faith, keep moving towards him. Let us together as a community keep stumbling towards Jesus because that's what a life of faith is. Do you stand with me? I want to end with a prayer. Um, I call it my Abraham prayer. I come to this prayer a lot, and I would like you to, to join me in it. So pray with me. I am, God, a jumbled mass of motives. One morning, I am adoring you, and the next, I'm shaking my fist at you. I vacillate between mounting hope and deepening despair. I am full of faith and full of doubt. I want the best for others and I'm jealous when they get it. Even so, God, I will not run from your presence, nor will I pretend to be what I am not. Thank you for accepting me with all of my contradictions. So, Lord, clean out, O oh God, the inner stream of my life, all the duplicity, all the avarice, all the falsity. Search out, O oh Lord, the hidden motives of my life, all the conceit, all the anger, all the fear, and root out, divine master, the destructive actions of my life, all the manipulation, all the scheming, all the guile. May the operations of faith, hope, and love increase in everything I am and in everything I do. And to that, in Jesus' name, God's people all say, amen, amen. Can I just say a quick prayer? Father, thanks for Abraham's story, for giving us like this, his whole life, the ups and the downs, so that as I see him, a man that you call a man of faith, that I can see myself in his story and know that what you care about, that for you, you don't focus on the snapshots, but your concern is that movie. It's the direction of my life. And so may we be a place, Lord, that together we just stumble toward you and we keep our eyes set on you. And may all of us, may I, when I come to the day of my death, that I'm still with you and I'm still pushing forward into you. So that at the end, you might look at us and you look at our life and you say, that is a person of faith. So we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, 12. As totally imperfect people as a bunch of Abrahams, you are sent. <laughs>